The Big Inside is a proud supporter of Give Strength. The fitness industry generates billions of dollars a year, literally. But while companies get rich, all that money rarely goes towards anything outside the industry. And right now, there's a lot of causes in the world that could use that strength. That's where Give Strength comes in. Give Strength empowers athletes in all types of lifting sports to generate fundraising towards causes they truly believe in, raising awareness and funding through the enthusiasm for lifting and strength sports participation. Through exciting events, challenging social campaigns, and good old school lifting, Give Strength is changing the flow of money in the fitness industry towards causes that matter. Meanwhile, Give Strength allows athletes to earn true financial sponsorship. That's right, cash money directly towards your own personal progress in the sports you love just for being a leader in generating funding for causes you believe in. Give Strength is changing the game of strength and bodybuilding one life at a time, one dollar at a time, one cause at a time. Get involved and learn more at GiveStrength.net. Give Strength. How your strength gives strength. On this edition of The Big Inside, I get yelled at because everyone else is eating bacon in the morning and, and then cornflakes become president or something. You just, you're just going just gonna to have to listen to get it. It's the next workout for your ears and it begins right now. It's another Monday night somewhere. Wait, wait, that doesn't make any, that doesn't make any sense. Oh, well. I, I guess it's time once again for the big inside. Broadcasting from the world-famous Public Alley 701 in the breakfast cereal-loving city of Boston, Massachusetts, I'm Christian Mady, a.k.a. XN, and this is The Big Inside, intersecting and reconnecting what transforms the body with what transforms the world, and then turning them both inside out to try to figure out what's practical, what's personal, and what just makes the most sense. We're all about the conversation, not the education, but with our luck, you're probably going to end up learning something along the way, especially today. And we got a lot of show today. It's a lot of show. So I got to keep this opening quick, brief as I can. And you already know the drill. You know, this is an independent show. I'm an independent creator. I work with independent collaborators. And right now, we're working for you for free. And we love it. We love doing it. And we love you. But we could use your help just a little bit back. So like I do every week, I want to remind you to please go over to the Big Insides Patreon.com page and become a supporter of this show. Why go out of your way to be like all these other nice folks and support us? Well, it's kind of like this. And like a lot of you folks, and, and even like my friends, yeah, like, yeah, my friends like you listening right now, I, I see you or sense you, whatever happens in a podcast. A lot of you have asked me f pretty frequently too, XN, he says, XN, why can't your episodes come out more often? I, I really like the show, Christian, and, and I really want that fix of the big inside more often. Why, why can't your episodes come out more often? Well, that's the good news about this whole Patreon thing. It's basically a way for you, you, this isn't like universal you, this is specifically you listening. It's a way for you to add your own inexpensive financial support to a project that you really think deserves to grow, or at least I hope you think so. And now every week I mention it and I'm super grateful for the folks who've hopped on board, but now I really, really have to ask you both as your friend, as well as someone who's working just really hard to bring you good content to please head over to patreon.com slash the big inside and just drop your few bucks into the bucket. It's just, it's really just a few bucks. It's hugely important. I remind you every episode and I'll continue to do so, but I'm really hoping that, that this time, this is when you step up 
show me you're a friend and show me that you really do support my work by going to patreon.com slash the big inside. And, and if not, maybe at least at a minimum, you could, you know, leave me a review or some stars or something at like Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen. Believe it or not, those ratings, those simple little ratings that take two seconds for you to do. And it's not just like a novelty. It actually, it's helpful. It helps other people find this show by giving The Big Inside a bump in the listings. And so it kind of brings us to the surface. So, you know, I'd appreciate it a ton. Okay, but now, I said I'd keep it quick. That was pretty quick. So on to the meat of the act, the big deal segment of the show. And I, I want to first make a tiny apology up front. Um, the folks involved with this episode were recording in from all sorts of places. So there's all kinds of varying quality and, you know, random background noises and thumps and clicks and whatnot. And it, it, I know you're used to a standard of gold production that rivals even the greatest in media. But you know, for this episode, let's just say, well, the little flaws we'd like to think of as giving a down home flavor. <laughs> It's not recording deficits. It's down-home flavor. Enjoy your flavor. <laughs> but, but no, but seriously, other than that, it's actually a really cool big deal. And it's one of the more fun ones we've had putting together. So let's have a listen. In a moment, I'm going to ask you a question. And I'm 100% certain you have a pre-planned answer to it. of America, the finest physically and mentally in the entire world. Opportunity is offered them today as never before in the history of mankind. Life really begins with breakfast. Good food today means a successful tomorrow. Downstairs in time for breakfast. Give yourself time to eat a good breakfast. Mother is pleased and proud. We're off to a good start this morning. A big country breakfast, two eggs, four slices of bacon or sausage links, hash browns, toast. Juice, too. And juice. So I think you already kind of know what the question is going to be. What is the most important meal of the day? Yep. I know what you thought. I know how you answered. Breakfast. Breakfast. Everybody knows, or at least most people seem to claim, that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And if you ask why, I mean, you'll get a whole bunch of well-thought-out answers. Breakfast sort of sets the tone for your stomach for the rest of the day. Yeah, to, to stimulate the metabolism, um, just kind of get things going for the day and uh, set yourself up. You've just gone through a six, eight, nine hour fast, so your body is going to be uh, starving for fuel. So it's helpful to get a little bit in in the morning. Yeah, you know, sounds pretty reasonable, right? Makes sense. And you can get these kinds of explanations just about anywhere. But you think about eating, and you also kind of have to wonder, well, isn't all nutrition pretty important? Like, isn't a good lunch pretty smart? Or how about a healthy dinner? 
Why is breakfast considered the most important meal of the day? It fucking, it fucking is not important. Oh, that's, that's bullshit, dude. That's fake science. It's bro science. Breakfast is not the most important meal of the day. <laughs> this is Murph. Uh, well, hold on. What am I doing? What, what am I just, doing? Fucking... Just tell them who you are, Murph. Give them your intro. Oh, yeah. My name's Murph, and I'm the owner of Total Performance Sports in Malden. That's Malden, Massachusetts. And I brought Murph on for a specific reason. Listen, you can always try to convert me if you want. No, buddy. no, I didn't. No, <laughs> it's not. Like, no, I didn't bring him on to make the show more pervy. I brought him on for a specific reason. It's because of what Murph does at Total Performance Sports in Malden, Massachusetts. He works with athletes for whom food is beyond just something you eat. It's literally a tool. See, he works with elite-level lifters, the big guys, the really strong ones, like the ones who compete and set records and all that. And these are people for whom calories and nutrition is incredibly important. In general, guys like that, strength athletes and bodybuilders and the like, are a really good place to start when you're trying to figure out almost anything that has to do with whether food is important or not. See, the act of lifting does incredible damage to the body. And so healing from damage is something that an elite lifter facilitates better than most of us do. People who strength train are just more focused on the healing value of the calories they consume than most people are. They have a strong insight into what's important to eat. So, like I said, it kind of makes a lot of sense to ask people like that, people like Murph, why we are so convinced of things like breakfast being the most important meal of the day. There's research that shows that uh, people do better without eating breakfast, and there's research that shows that people do better with eating breakfast. And I think in the end, it comes up to the individual. If you wake up in the morning and you don't want to fucking eat because it makes you insane, the stupidest thing you probably should do is eat. And if you wake up in the morning like a bear and you're starving, and maybe you should eat. So I think it's a lot of individual differences. Mainly what I try to stick to, if I'm not training in the morning, I'll stick to protein and fats. Um, typically, I have better mental clarity if I have a more protein, fat-based meal as opposed to carbohydrates. But if I am training in the morning, I'll uh, consume those carbohydrates to fuel my training. That's Mike O'Connor. Hi, I am uh, Mike O'Connor. I'm a business owner and amateur strongman and bodybuilding athlete. And you can hear by the way he talks about breakfast that it's more like um, a, like a factor in a broader sort of food accounting. Like as a competitor, he's totally worried about the healing effect of the food he eats, the, the metabolic factors. And so breakfast just falls into the equation of a day as one more of those metabolic factors. I think a lot of people relate breakfast to certain types of foods where it really doesn't have to be those types of foods. You, you look at more, look at it more as meal one to meet the goals that you have as opposed to eating breakfast for the sake of eating breakfast. Meal one. You can hear it. You can, you can hear how breakfast is only important to Mike in so much as it fits into a bigger equation of strength promoting eating. And I mean, guys like Mike and Murph, these are people who place a way higher focus on the importance of a given meal. So breakfast to them is only important in terms of how it fits into a bigger picture as opposed to, well, being somehow magically important unto itself. So the basic thing that I kind of tell my clients, you know, the, the way that I explain it is like when you when you eat first thing in the morning, 
your stomach sort of is like, oh, cool. This is what this is what we need for the rest of the day then. Like, and then if you don't eat for the rest of the day, your stomach's like, yo, dude, where you at? Like, it makes you hungrier actually, like when you do eat breakfast. Oh, and this is Brock, by the way. I'm uh, Brock Yurick and I'm a personal trainer and an actor. Now, this is someone who advises people all the time on how nutrition impacts their well-being. He's a personal trainer. So if he doesn't get it at least somewhat right, he won't get a paycheck. It kind of raises the stakes on what someone like Brock might say about breakfast. And on top of that, he's a television actor, which means his body is directly a component to his livelihood. So you can bet that he's going to be a little bit more discerning about what makes a meal important or not. So if you skip breakfast, your stomach's like, oh, cool, we're not, I, I guess I don't need food today. And then you don't eat the rest of the day and you don't gain muscle. Unless you're doing fasted cardio. And like when I was, I was prepping for that, for the bot, for the Boston show. Here he's talking about a literal bodybuilding contest. Like his body is literally the tool he's using to compete. And I would wake up and I would just have coffee and I would go do an hour of cardio. And then after that, I would have my breakfast. But if I'm not, if I'm not doing that, then um, I would just have breakfast like, you know, half hour after I wake up. I wake up starving every day. I burn a lot of calories. And this is Carlos. I'm Carlos Montano, and I'm a uh, systems engineer and bodybuilder in Oakland, California. And for him, a lot of breakfast's importance comes from the biological. Well, obviously, you know, my glycogen's depleted from uh, sleeping overnight, and uh, I, I want to get that restored as quickly as possible so I can move back into an anabolic state instead of being catabolic. Anabolic, catabolic, these are just fancy terms for what the body is doing with the food in the first place, which I guess kind of makes breakfast seem pretty important. I think it's important for most people. There's always a few outliers. That's Mark, and he's also a trainer, by the way. I'm Mark Samara. I'm a full-time personal trainer and part-time hilarious guy. Oh, oh, Mark. I mean, if you have to say it, dude, is it is it true? I mean, come on. Unbelievable. I mean, this is why the show's a train wreck. Well, why is breakfast important? This is Chris. My name is Chris Pantano. I'm from Boston. I am a dietitian. I am a competitive bodybuilder and also a fitness persona athlete on Instagram. So wait, wait, you're what they call an influencer? I'm considered an influencer, yes. Well, then, please, influence us on breakfast. Why is it so important? Well, you've been sleeping all night. You haven't probably eaten in, you know, eight to ten hours or so. I think that if you're, you want to get optimal, like, performance, whether it's, like, just enough energy for, like, the day or whatnot, I usually like to do a bigger breakfast, uh, not so heavy on the dinner as opposed to this whole three meal thing like the United States has been accustomed with for like the last like, I don't know, 60, 70 years. I think like years ago, I think breakfast was a good time for families to get together and kind of start the day with some family interaction and whatnot. And, and I think that nowadays is not really relevant anymore. Breakfast as a time for the family Huh. Now, now that's interesting. Because if something like that were true, it would mean breakfast is important for some reason other than just nutritional value. That idea that Chris is suggesting, it might be a clue. Like, maybe the reason we all think breakfast is so important has more to do with history 
then it has to do with biology. Huh. And you know, I've been wondering about this. Like, where this idea comes from, breakfast being the most important meal of our day. Like, is that a mandate? Or is that a myth? Is breakfast really important because of some nutritional vitality? Or did we all get, I don't know, convinced that it was important? Convinced by something we've all long since forgotten. Now, to figure this out, we can just keep on asking people who know a lot more about nutrition than we do. People like Murph and Brock and Chris and Mike. And, and I mean, these guys will tell us a lot about what the food does for our body and our health and all that and whether or not it's important. But all that biological information is not going to tell us why we all think breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Like, society thinks that way. Beyond just athletes looking to optimize performance. It's practically a universal truth, right? It's something that gets taught and repeated and emphasized to us from the beginning. And why? And that's where Chris's clue might be important to consider. Maybe to figure out where this idea even comes from, instead of looking at what we eat in the morning, we should have a closer look at why we eat in the morning. Elsewhere in the world, people just don't have the same kind of hangups about it that we do. Um, whether or not breakfast is important, like that's not even a discussion people have in Japan or in Indonesia. Like they just, they, they eat in the morning. So this is like a American hangup. Yeah, it is. So this whole idea of breakfast being important is American? Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because, you know, the, the foods that we consider to be important for breakfast in the U.S. and the U.K. are just, it's not the same elsewhere in the world. I mean, there are usually some kind of porridgey things, but breakfast cereal, which is now an international phenomenon, was invented in the U.S. Now, this is Heather, and she's a food historian. And yes, that's a thing. Hi, I'm Heather Arndt Anderson, and I'm a culinary historian and author. Wow, that was better than most people. That was really professional, Heather. It's not my first rodeo. <laughs> well, yeah, well, actually, that's a good place to start. Like, you're a food historian, so what's the kind of history you write about? Oh, um, well, I wrote Breakfast, a History, and I wrote Portland, a Food Biography, which is a culinary history of the city of Portland, Oregon. I wrote Chili's, a Global History, and I wrote Berries, a Global History. Oh, which just okay, so like... This is getting real now. Like, this is someone who actually has taken the time to learn the history of how we eat and the food we eat. Heather knows about our relationship with breakfast further back than just the 60 or 70 years that Chris was referencing. Because obviously there has to be something that led up to our obsession with considering breakfast so important. So a food historian is probably someone who can shed a little light on why we, well fetishize the importance of breakfast so much because Heather's job is to research why we eat not necessarily from the nutritional function of food but rather how our relationship to what we eat is often mainly about the influences around us rather than just nutrition alone like even what we think is good for us is actually often not even fully based on science but rather based on social influence 
in just the same way that these trainers and performance athletes have an intense and intricate relationship to food and nutrition, Heather has a similarly deep relationship to what we eat, just from a different perspective than merely biology. So, obviously, as we're trying to figure out why we all have such an obsession with whether or not breakfast is important, I was curious about what she makes of people having these kinds of obsessions with what meals mean. What do I make of it? You should take a look at my Instagram and answer that question. Like, <laughs> I, I make very much of it, and I, I write poems. I write haiku about <laughs> food. I mean, wow. I, you know, I, I've got um, a perspective about it that's informed by my own um, upbringing, my own personal history. Sure. Tell me more about that. Like, give me a, a two-minute clip oh, okay. on Heather. Well, I grew up in Portland, Oregon. I grew up below the poverty line and ate free uh, breakfasts at school every day, except for during the, the summer and winter breaks when I didn't have school. And, uh, and I always ate uh, generic cereal from the, the giant bags. Yeah, I just have very, you know, like... 80s kids, very Generation X memories of, of breakfast, eating cereal in front of cartoons on Saturdays and eating weird free, you know, poor kid food at school. And then, um, you know, now I, I am not in poverty, but I, I do still kind of eat weird food for breakfast and, um, and it's, I'm perfectly okay with it. Yeah. So, I mean, like fast forwarding to now, like how'd you end up writing a book of history on breakfast? Um, I think breakfast has, is just a, it's a fun meal. It's a meal that, um, you know, I have nostalgia for breakfast foods, just like any, any other person, but, um, I don't actually eat, I, don't, I usually don't eat my first meal until like 10 30 AM. I get, go to the gym. I do a little strength and I do it, you know, like I, I don't practice intermittent fasting as a technique um, or as a strategy. It's just I eat dinner early and then I don't eat again until the next day. And that's just sort of how my body functions best. And so I um, I tend to gravitate toward heartier fare, I guess. You know, I get home from working out and I eat like a bowl of soup. Oh, or some, all know. right. Well, soup, you know, a bowl of soup for breakfast or, or at least for what we would consider Heather's breakfast, you know, the first time she eats in the day. So is Heather and people like her just, you know, personally reinventing what breakfast is willy nilly? And if that's how it is and breakfast can just be whatever you want and doesn't matter and you can call anything breakfast, then, well, is the idea of breakfast unto itself just a, you know, random construct? Oh, my God. Uh, well, wait, wait a minute. What if it ends up that it doesn't matter when we eat breakfast or, or even what we eat for breakfast? And we can just, you know, descend into chaos and, you know, like eat soup at nearly noon. And that's considered, quote unquote, breakfast. And then we have to wonder, is there even such a thing as breakfast at all? And is breakfast just made up? And if it's made up, can it even be the most important meal of the day? Is breakfast just a construct that got made up and we're all just agreeing with it? Are, are, are we all just breakfast sheep? Is this all a lie? Am, am I crazy? You are. Oh, okay. Well, it's 
It's it is somewhat contrived, and I think if you are narrowing the focus of this this discussion to North America or England, then that's certainly true. Um, elsewhere in the world, people just don't have the same kind of hangups about it that we do um, about whether or not breakfast is important. Like that's not even a discussion people have in Japan or in Indonesia. Like they just they they eat in the morning. Oh, so all this obsession is like kind of more of an American thing. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because you know the, the foods that we consider to be important for breakfast in the U.S. and the U.K are just, it's not the same elsewhere in the world. I mean, there are usually some kind of porridgey things, but breakfast cereal, which is now an international phenomenon, was invented in the U.S. Yeah, but but wait, like even though breakfast cereal was invented in the United States, the idea of breakfast itself, I mean, that had to have been invented a lot sooner in human history than the United States. Yeah, it was um, following the medieval times. Like the 1200s and 1300s-ish. When there was a, there was a, all these politics about, about breakfast. Um, the reformation of the church, you know, the Protestantism coming out. Eating breakfast used to be considered a form of gluttony, and it was attached to the wow. seven deadly sins. And so until um, the reformation of the church, people didn't even eat uh, breakfast because it was considered boorish and you know, declassé and sinful at worst. And, That's fascinating. Yeah, and uh, and also recall that um, we didn't have there wasn't tea or coffee or chocolate. Those hadn't um, come out on the scene yet. And so there were some con- uh, considerations made for who could be allowed to kind of get a free pass, and it was children, the elderly, and the working, like the hardcore working stiffs who truly needed the food in the morning. Are you getting this? In medieval times, you know, with castles and peasants and kings and dragons, yeah, I mean, well, not really dragons, but but you get what I mean. Back then, breakfast wasn't just simply an uncommon idea. It was actually often regarded as literally unnecessary, but for the most needy, even seeming gluttonous and sinful. About 900 years or so ago, Breakfast wasn't simply regarded as an unimportant meal. It was outright regarded as a bad meal. And that's if it was even considered a meal at all. But anybody else from a more polite society or from a higher um, status didn't eat breakfast at all. Um, They would have their last meal at like 10 p.m. They might keep a little pot of this stuff called a posset pot. Um, It's kind of like uh, warm wine or ale. Oh, Oh, nice. Uh, like some chunky porridge floating on Ugh. top. <laughs> Sounds so delicious, doesn't it? And like spices. So basically what happens with me in the kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> it was kind of like medieval smoothies. Actually. Oh, I'm in. I'm in. Yeah, yeah. You had me at smoothie, Heather. I'll drink anything. <laughs> and they would just um, keep them in these like teapot things and just kind of like tip it back whenever they got a little peckish in the middle of the night. And or, yeah, um, yeah. What most people forget is that in those times, yeah. humans didn't like sleep all the way through the night the way we do. People slept in like four and three hour chunks all spread out through the night and day. Yeah, yeah. And get get up and do stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, people would be getting up in the middle of the night, being hungry at all times. And so really, with people drinking their grog mush smoothies all over the clock, there really wasn't a single meal that you could rightfully call breakfast. Like, which one would it have been? We're sleeping a chunk. We're up for a chunk. We're drink eating ale mush left and right. Uh, To call one meal breakfast would 
mean that someone had to decide it at some point, like decide which one of those eatings we called the official the breakfast. You know, they had to have all these definitions and rules around it because uh, the church was making, was kind of calling the shots back then. And so they really had to have everything very clearly outlined. It was not a matter of common sense or personal preference at all. It was just um, rules and consequences. Um, and so, yeah, it wasn't until like the 1500s then you know, people were more commonly eating what we consider to be breakfast foods in the morning. The privileged classes were the ones who had the hangups to begin with. And so they were the ones who had to let go of those hangups wow. since, yeah, everyone else had just been kind of going about their business and, um, and not really giving a shit about, <laughs> you know, um, there was just, yeah, a lot of like hand wringing about it. Um, I guess they just didn't have a lot else. To, I don't know. So the very idea of one meal being, quote, the breakfast, unquote, was something that was invented by a privileged class hundreds of years ago, specifically the class associated with the ever reforming Christian Church of Europe. Breakfast wasn't something that humans just did because back then all humans didn't sleep the same length of time that we do today at a stretch. And they were just eating, you know, whenever they needed it, whenever they were up. Breakfast as a meal idea, it seems, was sort of invented at a time when, well, lots of rules about how to live were being made up. You see, at this time in Europe, the way powers kept control was by evoking divine privilege. Basically, by saying, God told me so, so I'm right. And therefore, to keep your populations in line meant figuring out rules so that you could keep your control, and thus your power over people, literally embedded into their daily lives. But all this didn't just happen overnight. Like Heather inferred, there was lots of hand-wringing steps, gradually, over lots of decades and even centuries. Slowly was emerging in Europe and spreading rules that define, quote-unquote, good people. And among these rules was the notion that breakfast was not only now defined as a unique, distinct, official meal, but was also, in fact, somehow, well, like a thing that the good humans should do. Well, we start getting the advice of doctors. They start weighing and physicians start putting their two cents in. And so it becomes oh, a little bit more of a scientific right. thing and less of a moral conversation right and like with so many things from the late middle ages it was kind of like the arrival of, of science that changed things yes like this here newfangled yeah. science is sort of what began conditioning people's thinking that breakfast was somehow like a real meal and it kind of pulled everyone away from the morality idea that breakfast was just a form of gluttony yeah it's funny because the way that doctors started kind of putting it was um, they considered it to be unhealthy to eat a meal before the previous meal or your prior meal had been digested and so i think that was kind of a way of saying, like, you shouldn't eat before your morning constitutional. Ah, yes, the morning constitutional. The notion that good health is promoted by taking light exercise upon waking. Bully for you, good fellow, and I say good health. And um, that was, I think they just wanted to keep the human body, like, as a nice, well-oiled machine. Um, and yeah, so they, it 
just so funny to think of like don't don't eat until you take your morning <laughs> dump but, <laughs> but that was yeah <laughs> that's... but seriously like because we're still this is still the late middle ages so i'm assuming that these doctors and these opinions are like nowhere near the laboring classes or like the peasants or common folk or whatever these got to be like the opinion of like the privileged class doctors yes exactly like yeah. the learned the learned um yeah so they were advising that you should you get your blood pumping um you want to have your body like kind of awake before you put any food into it and also back then the types of foods that wealthy people were eating were kind of the more processed and heavier foods the working classes were still eating mostly like a you know hunk of grainy bread and like a piece of cheese and like a little mug of ale and then the, the wealthier people what you do the more like refined flowers and the more of course um you know processed meats and so it kind of makes sense that there was this uh this division of um advice and uh and who had access to that kind of advice too was was different right so now you're kind of getting like you know the working classes they need to eat the food to get the work done and then the upper classes are saying it's good for you and the two are kind of going to start colliding, I guess. Yeah, I think so. And I also, um, you start seeing around this time, the first writers who are writing really beautifully about their, like the fondness for these morning meals and the- Get out. Get, like yeah. literally like writers writing about breakfast in like the 1500s? Yeah. Like, oh, the time that they had this like hot buttered roll and really just, <laughs> you know, mellifluous, beautiful writing about these wonderful morning meals and these like oh, brisk, phenomenal. brisk morning strolls and through the garden and then coming back and- um, So it's being romanticized. Yeah. Yeah, totally. There's enough to fill a book. It's it's kind of incredible. Well, you did write a book, Heather. <laughs> I mean, that, that's what I heard anyway. So, but no, but like, so this is all like the bedrock. This is like all the foundation of breakfast. So when did it start becoming like common and like an everyday thing that everybody just kind of expects? I think like the middle of the, the 1700s, it's not even up for conversation. Like everyone's just um, in America and the U.S. because by then the... Uh, the U.S. is pretty is well. We're not the United States yet, but you know, it's like we're established um, as separate, although very much still influenced. I don't think that it was necessarily a colonial colonialist attitude because um, we still uh, humans still kind of don't like to fuck with their morning meal. And um, am I allowed to cuss on your podcast? Don't way? fucking swear any shitty things okay. on my pot. No, go for it. I don't care. I don't care. <laughs> But I mean, no, but I mean, okay. So breakfast is established in Europe for a few hundred years, right? And then obviously it like migrates over to Americas with colonialism. And, you know, with it comes all the notions, like you said, the romanticizing and, you know, the elite status of breakfast and all that. But what I'm wondering is what we've been wondering since the start. When do we start seeing this myth that we're trying to figure out, this myth about breakfast being the most important meal of the day? Oh, uh, yeah, it's like the late 1800s. That's when Kellogg starts writing about it um, in his magazine, Good Health. John Harvey Kellogg, he was uh, a doctor, um, and his brother, William John Kellogg. They always have like three names. He and his brother ran this sanitarium in Battle Creek, Michigan, the Battle Creek Sanitarium. And they, uh, John Kellogg had a magazine called Good Health, which um, he would just write, you know, his medical advice surrounding diet and exercise and, and, and good health. 
These guys are kind of funny because they were affiliated with the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and they were part of this whole movement in society, um, which is now called the, the Jeffersonian Clean Living Movement. They're, they're kind of like trying to start this new um, revolution, I guess, of like vegetarianism and um, abstention from caffeine and alcohol and famously um, abstention from sex and uh, masturbation. Sylvester Graham of the Graham Cracker is also, he's, you know, a forebear of this, this movement. I always refer to him as a staunch masturbation opponent, just because I think that's like the best way to describe it. So Sylvester <laughs> Graham is my mom. <laughs> <laughs> he, um, he drove this idea that uh, your your social or your your spiritual purity was connected to your your bodily purity, and so which is a common to, thing in that time, yeah. Yeah, and I think still, I think that the orthorexia has always been around in America. Wait, 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 wait what, what was that term? Or ortho what, ortho what now? Orthorexia, you know, like food purity, like purity of your diet and how people eat clean. You know, hashtag clean eating. Well, hashtag clean eating is uh, can can definitely can turn into a disordered type of eating. And that's where Sylvester Graham sort of steps into the picture and the Kellogg. Yeah, he's he's sort of creating this idea of yeah purity um, with regard to diet and um, yeah. And so John Harvey Kellogg is super influenced by this guy's writing and his work and also the work of um, William. At um, Alcott, who is um, another one of these guys, they're all religious leaders, and they're also um, espousing their beliefs on uh, diet. So Kellogg uh, opens the sanitarium. You know, people, mostly wealthy people, because he had to pay the, to go there, um, go and stay at these spas or this one specific sanitarium they get all these like cold water enemas and yogurt enemas and sounds fun <laughs> but okay orthorexia huh it's probably a psychological term i guess orthorexia it's about demanding and maybe obsessing about only eating wholesome nutritious high quality food clean food quote unquote you hear the morality stuck in there? And that morality makes sense because, you know, Kellogg was a preacher. Well, one of the Kelloggs was, and the other was a doctor. But from his influence sprang an entire movement in the late 1800s. A movement that aggressively encouraged people to eat wholesome, to eat clean, and demand higher food quality. And that idea, I'm betting, is sounding a little familiar, isn't it? Hashtag clean eating, right? We're still kind of on this orthorexia kick, even today. And the cultural influencers of the 1800s, the wealthy and the religious, well, they were getting more and more into a fad that encouraged an obsession with how clean you can eat because that gave you supposedly status. But it was just making everyone a little orthorexic. And with this kind of obsession, it's not hard to see why people began thinking of certain foods as more important than other foods. Or maybe that certain meals were more important. Just started as a fad. But the fad became a trend. And the trend became a norm. And then the norm became, well, 
an everyday idea. And you probably already figured out the ending to this part of the story. But the important part is not how it ended, but how it got started. Because it all began the same way that breakfast itself got started, hundreds of years prior in Europe, as an invention of the rich attempting to define what makes a person supposedly good. Inventions. Inventions of the powerful that become standards of the everyday. Maybe that's why we all think breakfast is so important. Just an idea, an orthorexic idea, that got started in a fancy rich person spa in the late 1800s in Battle Creek, Michigan, by a man named Kellogg. He he is the, the first... Uh credited with saying that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And it was part of his the routine that he was promoting at the sanitarium of getting up, having this like very roughage heavy, like grainy diet um, with uh, usually some kind of soy or nut protein. And um, and you know, starting your morning ablutions of like, you know, brisk cold water showers and, and exercise and this sort of, yeah, just really um, austere way of living. But the thing is, most people in the U.S. don't think of the Kelloggs as the guys who gave us orthorexia. We think of them as the guys who gave us the cornflake. Well, there's two separate things happening here. Um, the first is uh, these two brothers, the Kellogg boys, um, come up with a cereal on accident. and uh, But it turns out to be a hit. It's really delicious. And they're the clients at the San love it. And so Will is like, well, we should start um, producing this. And, uh, and John Kellogg wants to, you know, he's into it. But um, the problem was that the product spoiled too quickly corn goes rancid mm. really fast yeah of course and so will kellogg's like well if we can add sugar and salt to it it'll improve the shelf life but that was that was the you know the the line in the sand and john um harvey kellogg did not want to put any sugar in it and it ah. caused this permanent fraternal rift like the two were like died estranged from each other um but will kellogg is the one who launched the cereal company and became very wealthy and john kellogg you know stayed the doctor at the sanitarium and and you know sticking to his guns um so yeah that was that was what happened the cereal did come first though the the egg came before the chicken and isn't it interesting how it becomes this really tidy sort of allegory for you know america with the idea of like staying with you know, your moral convictions versus being the industrial capitalist. And it's literally in, you know, Cain and Abel story almost. Yeah. One turned into the industrialist and the other turned into the sort of like moral center. And those are the two themes we always see fighting in America. Uh -huh. But what's interesting is now if I put breakfast into both of those legs, whether it's going to be about, you know, the industry and the capitalist side or it's going to be about the moral and the privileged side, both of them are saying the same thing about breakfast. They have two different reasons for it, but they're both saying the same thing, right? Yeah, exactly. The impetus for uh, Will Kellogg is to move product, and um, John Kellogg wants to wants people to have healthy bodies and be spiritually clean. So then, like, how do we get from this dueling brothers morality play orthorexia thing to, you know, like how we think of breakfast today and why we're all sitting here thinking it's so important? Well, that's actually another question I think you already know the answer to. But the answer is so ever-present, so constant in your life, that we barely even think of it half the time. 
It's something that's literally all around us in America, but so much so that we actually overlook it. Advertising. Advertising. One of those great American industries that was really growing at the beginning of the 20th century. The advertising industry was really booming in the 1930s and 40s because printed media was expanding rapidly. But then advertising positively exploded as an industry with the advent of television. So this whole idea that breakfast is the most important meal of the day might have been started by the Kellogg's. But what spread it around, what got it into the head of every American and made it literally an American ideal? Well, that was because of the very American industry of mass advertising. So in recent decades, it was more or less the advertising industry that picked up the ball, or in this case, the cornflake, and ran with it. I mean, it was really advertising that spread this idea around, shrewdly. Yeah, the Beechnut Corporation who made bacon and other breakfast meats hired this ad man, Edward Bernays, who also was famous for um, dubbing Lucky Strike cigarettes as freedom torches and convincing oh, that women it was okay to smoke Lucky Strikes. This guy is like a marketing genius and they hire him to to do this campaign. And so he pulled all these doctors saying, hey, can you, would you say it's true that um, a hearty breakfast is better than a light breakfast? And he got all the doctors, you know, he was the first person to use like the expert opinion too um, in, in advertising. And they were like, well, yeah, sure. A hearty breakfast is probably better for you than a light breakfast. Um, and he was like, okay, would you agree then that a bacon and eggs would constitute a hearty breakfast? And they were like, well, yeah. And so then he was able to spin it and, you know, this like, it's like, well then, you know, 99 out of hundred doctors agree that bacon and eggs is a healthy breakfast. And that there is the power of advertising, right? I mean, they had the science, they had the morality, they had the message, and they definitely had the medium. So it was easy to manipulate the meal and get us to all buy into it. Breakfast being advertised as the most important meal of the day just so that some already wealthy industrialists can become even more rich may seem like a one-off in history. But you know the old saying, if you don't pay attention and learn from history, you're probably doomed to repeat it. So if this level of advertising manipulation could work for the orthopedic reputation of breakfast, someone's out there thinking maybe it will work for a different meal in the future too. What I'm seeing nowadays is like these... Um... Companies like Blue Apron and all those, we're seeing the emergence of this new manipulation of a meal, um, and it's dinner this time. And I think that it's going to be interesting to see um, how this plays out over the next few decades um, of how the how dinner evolves because of the the growth of these companies. Yep, we're at it again. It only took us a few centuries to cement the reputation of breakfast. Maybe we'll be quicker with dinner, right? But look, the point here is the origin of the idea. Uh, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. It's an invented idea, a human invention. And with how many centuries it's been working, you might even say it's one of the sturdiest inventions ever made by a human being. It's not science, it's not a religion, but many are convinced of it as if it was both of those things. 
not because of proof, but simply because of the slow, persistent, and perpetual influence of history. I think that, um, I think that actually, you know, history does kind of teach us some lessons about that. I think that the, sorry, my cat is sitting here and howling. Hi, cat. <laughs> Get out of here, Quincy. Thanks for um, coming on the big inside, I, Quincy. He's a, he's a really good cat. I, I, okay. I think that the thing with humans is that it's just same shit, different day. And I think that we uh, will find um, our own quote unquote unique ways of doing the same thing that we've been doing for, you know, centuries or millennia. Uh, we just use different language to describe it and it, it, you know, the details are different, but it's really the same. Um, so yeah, there's always gonna be ways for us to moralize um, our meals. Uh, the way we we eat, the time at which we eat, and the foods we eat are always going to be, um, now that we, you know, as long as we have the luxury to, to ponder these things. Yeah, this is a luxury. Thinking about these things, about why we think breakfast, or any meal for that matter, is the most important meal of the day, it's a luxury. But it's a luxury we often forget to take. We forget to ask why we believe in things. But just get stuck on debating what we believe. Which is why stopping the debate sometimes and going back into history can help sort out whether we should even be quibbling at all. So I have one more question for you. And it's one that I think you already know the answer to, just like all the other ones before. And no, it's not about what the most important meal of the day is. The question is about whether you're really sure you know where your beliefs come from. And if this is the first of the questions I've asked that you don't already have an answer for, well, don't worry. Because the answer is probably real easy to find. Just go back into your history a little bit. I'm betting you'll probably find your answers there. Thanks again for stepping inside the big inside. We'll be back again real soon to pour you out a big bowl of vitamin fortified life and then douse it with the milky goodness of the physique world. Milky goodness. We were doing so well with these closings and then you wrote milky goodness. All right, all right, whatever, whatever. Of course, like I said at the top of the show, if you appreciate the work I put in, I'd be grateful if you could show us. Go throw up a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Google Play or Anchor or wherever you listen to podcasts. Those little ratings help us out by helping new listeners find our show. And it only takes you like a few seconds. It's, it's free and it's quick. And karma is awesome. 
or better yet, go be a real friend of the show and head over to patreon.com. Become a patron of The Big Inside. We pretend this is art, and now you can too, starting at only like two little bucks a month. Two bucks. We really do rely on you to keep independent work like this alive. Patreon.com slash The Big Inside. And if you become a patron, don't forget, we promise you're going to get your very own AKA nickname given out right here, original on the air, totally unique, artisanal for you. Everybody wins. Now, if you have a question or a comment or an idea, or you love what we do, or you hate what we do, I am so eager to hear from you directly. I love talking to you folks. So contact us, contact me. Become what I call a big mouth by dropping me a line through thebiginside.com or just leave a comment on any episode's show page at thebiginside.com or on our Facebook page. And speaking of staying on the air, The Little Insider is next, but first, this. The Big Inside is brought to you in part by Saisei Sports. The world of strength and bodybuilding is full of hype, but big claims, bold statements, and bright spotlights aren't what makes these sports great. What sparks your passion is the ability to take your best and make it even better. And believe it or not, there's a word for that, Saisei. Saisei Sports is dedicated to improving the world of strength and fitness through innovative ideas, building local community, and delivering elite standard supplements like their premier product, Rekt Pre-Workout Formula. Rekt is not filled with hype and surprises. Read its label and you'll discover complete transparency, a product made of higher doses of ingredients than any other pre-workout on the market and maybe in the world, at ratios backed by science and common sense. Discover why more and more strength and bodybuilding athletes aren't just trying Rekt, but staying loyal to the product that may just be changing the world of lifting for the better, which is the Sci-C Sports mission. Learn more about Rekt as well as learning about other missions Saisei Sports is undertaking at www.saiseisports.com. Saisei Sports, it's your best, reborn better. As you know, my loyal fans, all two of you, we like to end each episode of The Big Inside with what we call The Little Insider. It's where we take something we have personally been up to or saw or just liked recently that was so good, we've got to recommend it to you. A little curated nugget of an idea ripped off the folks from our show. Basically, this is where we take something we recently did, we recently saw, we recently ate or recently thought or whatever, and turn it into a recommendation for you guys to maybe go try or do or watch or read or eat or whatever for yourself. So, Heather? Oh, man. Okay. No, I mean, it um, doesn't have to be deep. It could be shallow. It could be whatever you want. Okay. This is, it's a little of both. Okay, good. I um, am obsessed with a show that I just started watching on Netflix called The Perfect Match. It's a Taiwanese rom-com about oh these um, dueling restaurateurs. I... And um, the girl, um, Fun Ching, she runs a night market um, food stall and this, you know, bougie gourmet chef, Tang In, um, he challenges her. Yeah, so it's it's actually, it's really great. It's really entertaining. It's super twee. Um, there's really good food in it. Okay. <laughs> so so in other words, match. it's kind of like a palate cleanser to food morality is to watch The Perfect Match. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's, it's such good, clean fun and it's so pure and it's what we need. We all need this kind of content. Oh, oh man, this is awesome, Heather. <laughs> and, you know, I love Korean uh, K-dramas, rom-coms. Wait, is it Taiwanese or Korean? No, no, th this one's from Taiwan, but I, I watch a lot of Korean um, rom-coms, too. And, yeah, they're they're great. They're such a, 
like a step out of that, my own head. That's a great little insider. Everyone, go go Netflix yourself some Korean sitcoms. Clean your American food palates. <laughs> and Heather, you're so my hero right now. Thank you so much. Thanks, Christian. No, I'm, thanks for reaching out to me, and I'm glad we were able and to. Sincerely, Heather Art Anderson, thank you so much. You too, thanks. And that's The Big Inside. This episode was produced by the Physiculture Collaborative, who also starred in a Taiwanese rom-com, but unfortunately, every copy of that film was burned, and we danced and danced around those flames. <laughs> Music in today's episode was all Creative Commons licensed and created by Graphic Melee, Kevin McLeod, and even a few Swedish street-performing musicians who I unfortunately don't have names for, but guys, if you can hear my voice, you're incredibly talented. Please check out all of these genius artists online at places like Bandcamp and YouTube and SoundCloud and the like. Their work is not only incredible, some of them are also friends of mine. That's the workout for your ears this time around. I'm Christian Mady, a.k.a. XN for The Big Inside, reminding you that no matter what you do on your outside, what makes it big is what's found on the inside. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you later. The Big Inside is also brought to you in part by Scorpio Creative. We all have big ideas from time to time. A new business, a cool brand, an amazing project. But how do we make those ideas come to life? And then, how do we get people excited for our ideas? Scorpio Creative can help you do all that and more. Scorpio Creative is a boutique design, branding, and marketing firm that works with the little guys like you to make your ideas shine like the big guys. In a world full of impersonal and automated marketing and branding solutions, Scorpio Creative brings custom, personalized partnership for all your branding, design, and promotional projects. Why not give your business, your brand, or your mission the same treatment the big guys get at a fraction of the cost? Visit Scorpio Creative today at www.scorpiocreative.com. Let's bring your ideas to life.